Chapter Three of the House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House of a Thousand Candles. Annandale derives its chief importance from the fact that two railway lines intersect there. The Chicago Express paused only for a moment while the porter deposited my things beside me on the platform. Light streamed from the open door of the station. A few idlers paced the platform, staring into the windows of the cars. The village hackman languidly solicited my business. Suddenly out of the shadows came a tall, curious figure of a man clad in a long ulster. As I write, it is with a quickening of the sensation I received on the occasion of my first meeting with Bates. His lank, gloomy figure rises before me now, and I hear his deep, melancholy voice, as, touching his hat respectfully, he said, "'Beg pardon, sir. Is this Mr. Glenarm? I am Bates from Glenarm House. Mr. Pickering wired me to meet you, sir.' "'Yes, to be sure,' I said. The hackman was already gathering up my traps, and I gave him my trunk checks. "'How far is it?' I asked, my eyes resting a little regretfully, I must confess, on the rear lights of the vanishing train. Two miles, sir,' Bates replied. "'There's no way over but the hack in winter. The summer this steamer comes right into our dock.' "'My legs need stretching. I'll walk,' I suggested, drawing the cool air into my lungs. It was a still, starry October night, and its freshness was grateful after the hot sleeper. Bates accepted the suggestion without comment. We walked to the end of the platform, where the hackman was already tumbling my trunks about, and after we had seen them piled upon his nondescript wagon, I followed Bates down through the broad, quiet street of the village. There was more of Annandale than I had imagined, and several tall smokestacks loomed here and there in the thin starlight. "'Brickyard, sir,' said Bates, waving his hand at the stacks. It's a considerable centre for that kind of business. "'Bricks without straw?' I asked as we passed a radiant saloon that blazed upon the boardwalk. "'Beg pardon, sir, but such places are the ruin of men.' On which remark I based a mental note that Bates wished to impress me with his own rectitude. He swung along beside me, answering questions with dogged brevity, Clearly, here was a man who had reduced human intercourse to a basis of necessity. I was to be shut up with him for a year, and he was not likely to prove a cheerful jailer. My feet struck upon a graveled highway at the end of the village street, and I heard suddenly the lapping of water. "'It's the lake, sir. This road leads right out to the house,' Bates explained. I was doomed to meditate pretty steadily, I imagined, on the beauty of the landscape in these parts and I was rejoiced to know that it was not all cheerless prairie or gloomy woodland. The wind, freshened cud, blew sharply upon us off the water. "'The fishing's quite good in season. Mr. Glenarm used to take great pleasure in it.' "'Bass, yes, sir. Mr. Glenarm held there was nothing quite equal to a black bass.' I liked the way the fellow spoke of my grandfather. He was evidently a loyal retainer. No doubt he could summon from the past many pictures of my grandfather, and I determined to encourage his confidence. Any resentment I felt on first hearing the terms of my grandfather's will had passed. He had treated me as well as I deserved, and the least I could do was to accept the penalty he had laid upon me in a sane and amiable spirit. 
This train of thought occupied me as we tramped along the highway. The road now led away from the lake, and through a heavy wood. Presently, on the right, loomed a dark barrier, and I put out my hand and touched a wall of rough stone that rose to a height of about eight feet. "'What is this, Bates?' I asked. "'This is Glenarm land, sir. The wall was one of your grandfather's ideas. It's a quarter of a mile long, and cost him a pretty penny, I warrant you. The road turns off from the lake now, but Glenarm property is all lakefront. So there was a wall about my prison-house. I grinned cheerfully to myself. When a few moments later my guide paused at an arched gateway in the long wall, drew from his overcoat a bunch of keys, and fumbled at the lock of an iron gate, I felt the spirit of adventure quicken within me. The gate clicked behind us, and Bates found a lantern and lighted it with the ease of custom. "'I use this gate because it's nearer. The regular entrance is farther down the road. Keep close, sir, as the timber isn't much cleared.' The undergrowth was indeed heavy, and I followed the lantern of my guide with difficulty. In the darkness the place seemed as wild and rough as a tropical wilderness. "'Only a little farther.' rose Bates' voice ahead of me, and then, "'There's a light, sir,' and lifting my eyes as I stumbled over the roots of a great tree, I saw for the first time the dark outlines of Glenarm House. "'Here we are, sir,' exclaimed Bates, stamping his feet upon a walk. I followed him to what I assumed to be the front door of the house, where a lamp shone brightly at either side of a massive entrance. Bates flung it open without ado, and I stepped quickly into a great hall that was lighted dimly by candles fastened into brackets on the walls. "'I hope you've not expected too much, Mr. Glenarm,' said Bates with a tone of mild apology. "'It's very incomplete for living purposes.' "'Well, we've got to make the best of it,' I answered, though without much cheer. The sound of our steps reverberated and echoed in the well of a great staircase. There was not, as far as I could see— a single article of furniture in the place. "'Here's something you'll like better, sir,' and Bates paused far down the hall and opened a door. A single candle made a little pool of light in what I felt to be a large room. I was prepared for a disclosure of barren ugliness, and waited in heartsick foreboding for the silent guide to reveal a dreary prison. "'Please sit here, sir,' said Bates, "'while I make a better light.' He moved through the dark room with perfect ease, struck a match, lighted a taper, and went swiftly and softly about. He touched the taper to one candle after another. They seemed to be everywhere, and one from the dark, a faint twilight that yielded slowly to a growing mellow splendor of light. I've often watched the acolytes in dim cathedrals of the old world set countless candles ablaze on magnificent altars, always with awe for the beauty of the spectacle, but in this unknown house the austere serving man— summoned from the shadows a lovelier and more bewildering enchantment. Youth alone of beautiful things is lovelier than light. The lines of the walls receded as the light increased, and the raftered ceiling drew away, lowering the eyes upward. I rose with a smothered exclamation on my lips and stared about, snatching off my hat in reverence as the spirit of the place wove its spell about me. Everywhere there were books. They covered the walls to the ceiling, with only long French windows and an enormous fireplace breaking the line. Above the fireplace a massive dark oak chimney-breast further emphasized the grand scale of the room. 
from every conceivable place, from shelves built for the purpose, from brackets that thrust out long arms among the books, from a great crystal chandelier suspended from the ceiling, and from the breast of the chimney, innumerable candles blazed with dazzling brilliancy. I exclaimed in wonder and pleasure as Bates paused, his sorcerer's wand in hand. Mr. Glenarm was very fond of candlelight. He liked to gather up candlesticks, and his collection is very fine. He called his place the House of a Thousand Candles. There's only about a hundred here, but it was one of his conceits that when the house was finished there would be a thousand lights. He had quite a joking way, your grandfather. It suited his humour to call it a thousand. He enjoyed his own pleasantries, sir. I fancy he did, I replied, staring in bewilderment. Oil lamps might be more suited to your own taste, sir, but your grandfather would not have them. Old brass and copper were specialties with him, and he had a particular taste Mr. Glenarm had in glass candlesticks. He held that the crystal was most effective of all. I'll go and let in the baggage man, and then serve you some supper. He went somberly out, and I examined the room with amazed and delighted eyes. It was fifty feet long and half as wide. The hardwood floor was covered with handsome rugs. Every piece of furniture was quaint or interesting. Carved in the heavy oak paneling above the fireplace, in large old English letters, was the inscription, The Spirit of Man is the Candle of the Lord. And on either side great candelabra sent long arms across the hearth. All the books seemed related to architecture. German and French works stood side by side among those by English and American authorities. I found archaeology represented in a division where all the titles were Latin or Italian. I opened several cabinets that contained sketches and drawings, all in careful order, and in another I found an elaborate card catalogue, evidently the work of a practiced hand. The minute examination was too much for me. I threw myself into a great chair that might have been spoiled from a cathedral, satisfied to enjoy the general effect. To find an apartment so handsome, and so marked by good taste in the midst of an Indiana wood, staggered me. To be sure, in approaching the house, I had seen only a dark bulk that conveyed no sense of its character or proportions, and certainly the entrance hall had not prepared me for the beauty of this room. I was so lost in contemplation that I did not hear a door open behind me, the respectful, mournful voice of Bates announced, "'There's a bite ready for you, sir.' I followed him through the hall to a small, high-wainscoted room where a table was simply set. "'This is what Mr. Glenarm called the refectory. The dining-room on the other side of the house is unfinished. He took his own meals here. The library was the main thing with him. He never lived to finish the house. More's the pity, sir.' He would have made something very handsome of it if he'd had a few years more. But he hoped, sir, that you'd see it completed. It was his wish, sir. Yes, to be sure, I replied. He brought cold fowl and a salad, and produced a bit of stilton of unmistakable authenticity. I trust the ale is cooled to your liking. It's your grandfather's favourite, if I may say it, sir. I liked the fellow's humility. He served me with a grave deference and an accustomed hand. Candles in crystal holders shed an agreeable light upon the table. The room was snug and comfortable, 
and hickory logs in a small fireplace crackled cheerily. If my grandfather had designed to punish me, with loneliness as his weapon, his shade, if it lurked near, must have been grievously disappointed. I had long been inured to my own society. I had often eaten my bread alone, and I found a pleasure in the quiet of the strange unknown house. There stole over me, too, the satisfaction that I was at last obeying a wish of my grandfather's, that I was doing something he would have me do. I was touched by the traces everywhere of his interest in what was to him the art of arts. There was something quite fine in his devotion to it. The little refectory had its air of distinction, though it was without decoration. There had been, we always said in the family, something whimsical or even morbid in my grandsire's devotion to architecture, but I felt that it had really appealed to something dignified and noble in his own mind and character, and a gentler mood than I had known in years possessed my heart. He had asked little of me, and I determined that in that little I would not fail. Bates gave me my coffee, put matches within reach, and left the room. I drew out my cigarette case and was holding it half-opened when the glass in the window back of me cracked sharply. A bullet whistled over my head, struck the opposite wall, and fell flattened and marred on the table under my hand. End of chapter 3